So Jesus, we ask that you would please speak to us through your word. Help us to understand what we don't understand and follow you better. We ask this in your name, Lord. Amen. Well, good to see all of you out there. I see a lot of blue and green. I want you to know I am ready for today's game. I got my hawk socks on. So I am ready. Over there, I got a Seahawks tie. I am ready for victory as soon as the 11 o'clock service is over, <laughs> at which there will be about four people. One of the guys I, the staff is doing an over-under on that, by the way. Anyway, one of the guys I, I mentored when I was a uh, college pastor, he's now a He's now a pastor himself, and the first wedding he ever did, he said he was just super nervous about it, wanted to get it right, and during the ceremony, as, as, he, as he's giving his talk to the couple, he was thinking, man, this is going really well, they're following me, good, this is, this is going really well, and then out of nowhere, the, the four-year-old ring bearer starts tugging on his suit and says, hey, mister, you talk too much, <laughs> which is just a great I- illustration of the fact that we often do not, uh, we have a picture of ourselves that often doesn't square with reality. We are doing a sermon series on how we grow spiritually, but also relationally in other ways as well. And, and this is part two of the sermon I began last week, talking about how the foundational habit for all of growth is really to delete our self-deceptions, the ways we are blind to our flaws. Because if we don't delete our delusions, then we won't grow because we don't think that we have to grow or that we need to grow. And it's not just our flaws that we're blind to. Sometimes we're blind to our strengths, our good sides, all of that. And last week I said that there were two things that help us delete our self-deceptions. I'm just going to review quickly. The first is to let the Bible read you. That is, let it critique us and unmask some of the ways we're living and deceiving ourselves. And the second is to ask God to show you the truth about you, your strengths and weaknesses. So this is part two of that sermon, and I'm just going to pick up where I left off last week with the third step in deleting self-delusions, and that is to lose the weight. And some of you are like, did the pastor just call me fat? Because that's like rude. But what I mean by that is the weight that our self-deceptions, particularly about our flaws, can, can place on us. Psalm 32 says, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered, and in whose spirit is no deceit. In other words, no self-deception. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. See, that's the problem with self-deception. It weighs on us, particularly if we're hiding secrets or if we're trying to kind of pretend that we've got it all together. That's a weight. That's a burden. In fact, research shows that can make you sick, the stress of all of that and holding it in, which it does for the psalmist here, right? His bones are wasting away. But notice what happens when he comes clean. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. He starts with groaning and bones wasting away, but he ends with songs of deliverance. And the point is this, when we come clean, when we confess our sins, it's a weight lifted off of us. The happiest people on the planet are the people who've got nothing to hide. They know they've been forgiven. They're not pretending or posing or posturing. They are free. They are happy. And there's an interesting wordplay in this psalm. Verse 1 says this, Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Everyone say covered. Covered. Then verse 5 goes on and it says this, I acknowledge my sin and did not cover up my iniquity. Uses the word cover twice. And what he's getting at is there's a difference between our covering and God's covering. See, our covering is a cover-up. 
But God's covering in verse 1 is different. In fact, the Hebrew word there means literally to lift off of or to remove. So he says, I I uncovered my sin, and then God says, don't worry, I got you covered. I took care of that on the cross. I paid the penalty for your sin on the cross. You are forgiven. I covered it. I got you covered. Now, it's true that, that, you know, along the way we hurt other people, and we got to deal with that, which I'll get to later in the sermon. But But the power of confession is this. When you uncover your sin before God, you discover that God's got it covered. God's voice is never one of shame or judgment or condemnation. That's the devil. God will convict us, as I said last week, but that's different than guilt. Guilt says I am bad. Conviction says I'm doing something harmful. And this is key to growth because if we think that we are, I am my sin, then I'm not going to grow. I'm going to feel disempowered by that and just kind of give up and feel trapped. But on the other hand, if I say I'm a person who has sin, that's different. Now I have agency. Now I'm empowered and I can grow. And in order to experience this kind of freedom, we all need to cultivate the spiritual discipline of nakedness. Some of you are like, this is a weird sermon, right? Like, this guy, what's wrong with him? What the psalm is actually alluding to is back in Genesis where Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. But after they disobey God, they become ashamed and they make fig leaves to cover themselves up, which just describes the human condition. Right? Why, are some of us, why are some of us perfectionists? Why are some of us so worried about how we look or working ourselves to death in order to achieve or starving ourselves in order to be thin? Because we're covering over our nakedness. We're trying to patch together this illusion of having it all together, trying to deceive others, and in the process, we deceive ourselves. We begin to buy our own PR, all because we don't want to admit our flaws even to ourselves. I recently read that uh, business has been declining for therapists. There's a lot of reasons for that, but one of them is that people don't want to admit that they've got problems. It's getting harder and harder for people to do that in our culture. Plus, a lot of people, more and more these days, don't think that they have a problem. Their issue is the other difficult people in their life. That's the real problem, right? So some therapists have been hiring rebranding experts to kind of give them advice, and they're giving them giving them advice like instead of identifying yourself as a psychotherapist, advertise, you know, use something, a more positive term like happiness locator. (laughs) I'm like, please. Or my favorite was, you know, rather than saying I do relationship counseling, advertise your services by saying, you know, are you having trouble with the difficult people in your life? Right, because you can't possibly be the problem, right? One of the things we've noticed here is that if we offer a course on marriage or finances in particular, some folks are reluctant to go. And they even said, I don't want to go to that class because I'm afraid that people will then think I've got a problem in that area. Okay, well, here's the thing. You do, right? So maybe it's a good idea to go to that class. Or even if you don't, I mean, some, those classes can be great ways to help a good situation get better. We've, we've got one coming up, Financial Peace University. If you, if you are really secure financially, it's still a great class to know how to even have more peace around it plus know how to pass on good principles to your kids, or if you're struggling. It's either way, good or bad, either way. You know, I have never lived in a community that is more terrified, more, more addicted to posturing and posing, and more terrified that someone's going to think they have a problem than here on the east side. It's pathological here. Like, we are sick and twisted on, on the east side. I mean, some folks in this church, they don't even, even want to come up after the service for prayer because, again, they're concerned that people will think they've got a problem. Okay, well, maybe they do, but here's the thing. They're braver than you because they're willing to admit it. 
Or maybe they're there to give thanks for good things in their lives. But whatever it is, like, could we just agree as a community that when folks go to receive prayer, we don't all go, oh, look, there's the loser line, right? Or, or, or better yet, could we just admit that we're all in the loser line, right? Like all of us, right? Because we all got issues. I got issues. You got it. We all have issues, okay? Especially you on this side of the room, just looking at you. You're like, your disaster's over here. This side, good. No, over here, right? I go to First Lusitarian Church of Bellevue, Bell Lose for short, right? I mean, we're all Bell Losers. Maybe we should have a little liturgy. I'd get up and say, hey, losers, and you could say back, hey, loser. <laughs> Folks, here is the astonishing freedom and good news of Jesus. It is not our goodness that gets us into heaven. In fact, our goodness can keep us out a lot of the times because we get smug about it. It's admitting that we are sinners, who need the grace of Jesus to forgive us and make us whole. That's the ticket for admission, period, full stop. No additions or deletions. And nakedness is the perfect illustration, the perfect metaphor for that. Because at its most basic level, nakedness is when you don't control what people see. You can't manage perceptions. See, confession of sin is just a synonym for deleting our self-deceptions. And what a relief not to have to prove ourselves all the time. It's interesting that when Jesus was crucified, the soldiers cast lots for his robes. And that's part of what was so awful about crucifixion. You were stripped naked. And what that shows is that he was made naked so that you and I could be clothed in his righteousness. Because you see, because of Jesus, we're not just forgiven. We are, we are justified, which means just as if it had never happened. He paid the price, so now your record has been wiped clean. And only Jesus can do this for us. Pastor Tim Keller tells a story of a woman who let her parents down in some areas, and, but her parents forgave her, and she said, I know God forgives me, but I don't feel forgiven. And Tim finally figured out that it was because the God she actually served were her ideas of her parents' expectations for her, not their real ones, but the ones she assumed they had for her. That was the God that she was actually serving, and that God was never going to forgive her. See, we are all serving gods that are never going to forgive us. But once she connected with Jesus, felt his forgiveness, she felt that weight come off of her. To delete self-deception, we got to surrender. The word is surrender our sin to God because he's the only one that can handle it. And hear him say, I put that to death on the cross. I have buried it on the ocean floor. I got you covered. And one practical way to do this is a, an exercise been around for centuries called the prayer of examine. And I put a, a version of that in the question sections of your bulletin if you, if you want to take it home. And the way that works is every night before you go to sleep, you say, Lord, show me where today I was the person you created me to be. And let the Holy Spirit just kind of guide you as you review your day. And then pray, Lord, where did I fall short? And then go one step deeper and ask about your motives. So don't just say, God, I'm sorry I lied. Ask, why did I lie? So maybe, for instance, you lied because, you know, getting ahead or someone's approval was more important to you than God. And do that, and it, it leads to a deeper self-knowledge that can unmask some of our self-deceptions. Uncover your sin before God and hear him say, don't worry about it, I got you covered, and feel the weight come off. Okay, that works for the sins that we're kind of you know, we kind of pretend we don't have, we're kind of in the back of our mind, but deep down we actually know that they're there, right? But what about those flaws that we are absolutely blind to, that we can't see at all, let alone the good things in our lives that we're blind to? What do we do about those? Well, that's where we need step four, and that is transparent Christian community. See, this psalm wasn't just written as a private devotion. It was meant to be used in corporate worship, worship 
So he's coming clean in front of his whole community. And I say Christian community, not because we all need other Christians, not exclusively Christians in our lives, but we all need some Christians who are cheering us on to live the counterculture, radical way of Jesus, who are going to say, way to go, when we resist the materialism of our culture or work on our marriage or any number of things that the culture will not reward us for. We all need other people in our lives who, who celebrate the good things like the promotions and the new babies and all of that, as well as folks who can be honest with us when we're deceiving ourselves. Not in a judgmental way, but in a way that says, hey, I know you want to be different, and I know you got it in you to be different, so go be that man, that woman, that, 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 that father, that mother, that pastor, that leader, that teacher, that manager, that I know that you can be, and how can I help? read an article this week that said one of the reasons the Seahawks play so well is that they're, just, they're this tight brotherhood. They just genuinely love each other, and they are ruthlessly honest with each other. Not in a judgmental way, but in a, hey, you know, how, I can, you can do better kind of a way. And the article said that during one practice, Earl Thomas didn't like the way that Harold Simon was playing, so he went over to him and said, are you playing a video game? It's like you're playing football like you're playing Madden. You know, cut it out. And, and Simon said he immediately kind of snapped into focus. And he said, you know, I, I know Earl didn't mean anything by it. These are just really straightforward guys. Okay, he had some self-deceptions about how he was playing. Earl Thomas helped him to do better, helped him to see it. And, and it's this honest camaraderie that says, I'm seeing stuff that you're blind to, but I know you got it in you to up your game. How can I help? One of the other players said, you know, if someone says something to you and you feel bad about it or mad about it, it's probably because it's true which is kind of a good rule of thumb, right, in general. But they don't just do that. They also help each other know their strengths. The article said that Earl Thomas in particular is kind of always saying over-the-top things like, you know, you've got greatness in you. And Thomas said it always turns into some guys, you know, into guys telling me they love me, and then, of course, I'm going to say I love you back because I do. Okay, Christian community should be like that, the Seahawks, okay? <laughs> Except we don't knock people down for a living, okay? That's... You know, don't push the metaphor too, metaphor too far, but you get kind of what I'm going after, right? And, you know, and, 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 and by the way, if someone does say something to you like that, don't blow it off, you know, just, oh, no, that's not true about me, or, you know, oh, yeah, well, you do too, and other mature comments and things like that, right? A prayer that I use a lot in my life is, Lord, help me to hear in this critique what I need to hear and discard what is not true. Wrestle with it. And not just our weaknesses, but our strengths as well. Because we need people in our lives who are going to tell us the truth about our strengths, too. I heard one man once say that a good friend of his told him one day, you know what I like about you is your spiritual gift is insanity, and you're not afraid to use it. And it kind of revolutionized it. I mean, he's this out-of-the-box, creative thinker, huge asset in lots of situations. It helped him embrace his strengths that he was blind to. We all need people not to judge us or police our actions, but to say, hey, I know you can do better. Let me help. And are you noticing some strengths in you? Because I am. Christian community is non-negotiable to Jesus and for growth. We can't do it alone. And it's got to be more than just our spouse. We need friends and pastors and mentors. And I mean, it takes a village to deal with you and to deal with me. We all need folks who will help us see what we can't. Someone sent me a text exchange between a mom and a son, but the mom didn't quite understand texting lingo because the mom texted this. Your great aunt just passed away, LOL. <laughs> so the son texted back, why is that funny? So the mom texted back and said, it's not funny, David. What do you mean? So then the son texted back again, mom, LOL means laughing out loud. 
So then the mom texted back, oh my goodness, I sent that to everyone. I thought it means lots of love. I have to call everyone back. <laughs> mom was kind of blind to how she was coming across, right? Needed, needed someone to point it out to her. We all do. Okay, last step to delete self-deceptions. Practice reconciliation. I'm not going to belabor this because it's a whole other sermon, but reconciliation forces us to admit the truths about ourselves. Because occasionally we are the innocent victim, but 99% of the time we got stuff. We got a dog in that hunt. And reconciliation forces us to admit where we screwed up, and that helps us delete some of our self-deceptions. Researcher and all-around awesome person, Brene Brown, says that in order for forgiveness to happen, something has to die. Expectations, pride, the need to be right, our self-deceptions, they all have to die in order for forgiveness to happen. And she says the problem in our culture is forgiveness is too easy. There's not enough blood on the floor. And this is where Jesus is so emotionally, psychologically, and theologically compelling. He dies to forgive our sins. Plenty of blood on the floor. And a simple way to reconcile with others is to say, and then to mean, you got to mean it, five things. And the first is this, here's what I've done to hurt you. And the key is you can't pull your punch on this one. You can't go, oh, I've been a little difficult. No, you got to say things like, you know, I lashed out in anger that was meant to demean you. And stuff like that. Here's what I've done to hurt you. Here's how I think that made you feel. Here's how I feel about hurting you. Step four is a doozy. Have I missed anything? And then you let them fill in the blanks. And then finally you say, will you forgive me? Not I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you're still in the driver's seat. Will you forgive me is more vulnerable. And when both sides, reconciliation begins when blame shifting ends and when both sides can say and mean these five things, the relationship can usually be healed. Now sometimes the other person won't play along. That's fine. You can let the anger go in your heart and you can go through these five steps which will help you delete some of your self-deceptions. This is not for the faint of heart, guys. This is for people who've got courage and guts because it's hard work. But it leads to growth and new life and all kinds of wholeness. woman from my former church, Nancy Yorkberg, talks about a time when she was in her mid-20s and she had a good friend named Betsy. And they'd ask each other deep questions, talk about God, relationships, great, great friendship. And Nancy had been dating one of, uh, her boyfriend for about two and a half years and then broke up with him. And she said it was one of the hardest times of her life. She, she was depressed, didn't understand why she had felt led to break up with him, why God let it get that far, only to fall apart, all of that. Now she says, looking back, now she says she's, she's grateful because if she had stuck with that relationship, now she'd be living in North Dakota instead of California. But, but then, right, it didn't seem so, so clear. So, every, uh, for, so for months and months, a couple of times a week, on her way to work, she was a nurse, her shift started at 3 in the afternoon, Nancy would stop by Betsy's house and just pour out her heart. And Betsy would listen and encourage her, talk about God, all of that. But it was going on for such a long time, Nancy was getting stuck in her grief. So one day, Betsy said, you know, I, I need to tell you something. You've got to stop this. You're letting this take over your whole life. It's all you can focus on. It's time for you to find that quiet place in your heart where you can see what God is doing in the middle of all this. It's time to stop looking backward and stop, start looking forward to what God can do. You need to move on. Nancy said she was so embarrassed that she grabbed her stuff, went to the car, cried all the way to work. But as she was parking her car, she felt like there was this kind of whisper from God that said, Betsy has given you a gift. And Nancy said, well, then I'd like the receipt because I don't like it. I'm going to take it back. 
But all day that thought kept coming back, and she knew that God was right. And she she said, you know, God is incredibly annoying that way sometimes, right? He's always right. So, you know, on her way home, she was thinking about how she needed to trust God with her pain and start living with hope and joy again. So she got home about midnight, knew she was going to wake Betsy up, but called her anyway and said, you took a huge risk in our friendship, and I am so grateful because it's what I needed to hear. See, Nancy was blind to some unhealthy patterns in her life, but she had a friend who loved her enough to tell her the truth when others wouldn't, to delete some of those self-deceptions. And yeah, it caused a brief break in the relationship for about a day, but Nancy was able to reconcile and confess her sin, which was basically to make that boyfriend an idol and trust in him more than she was trusting in God for her future. And the result was she deleted some of those self-deceptions, and that led to a whole bunch of of growth. And she doesn't have to live in North Dakota. All in all, really good deal, right? (laughs) So how can you delete some self-deceptions in your life, both about your flaws, but also about your strengths? Maybe it's something I said last week. Maybe it's to find some folks who can tell you the truth in love, but whatever it is, do it, because it leads to growth. It is the first step in all growth. You got to admit you got a problem. The bad news is the powers of self-deception are almost infinite. The good news of it is that Jesus, Jesus covers our flaws, covers our sins, and puts folks in our lives who can can help us live up, not down. And Jesus will tell us the truth about who we are so that we can become all that he created us to be. And he says says to you and he says to me, I love you. I believe in you. I got a better way. You want to try it? So how can you begin to delete some of those self-deceptions starting today? So Jesus, this is not easy work, and we know we can't do it without you. So Lord, open our eyes, help us see both our flaws, but maybe also the strengths that we are blind to, so that we can know ourselves aright and grow into the people you created us to be. Jesus, we know that this is not self-help. We know that it can only be done through your power. Open our eyes, Lord. Help us to see ourselves aright and you aright and follow you. We pray this in your name, Lord. Amen.